Today I wanted to, um, I, I was struggling to come up with a title, by the way. I was thinking of saying Holy Spirit. And then, you know, you thought maybe it needs to be a little bit more interesting. So I figured of calling it um, Spirit-Filled Jesus or Holy Ghost Jesus. And, but I landed with Holy Spirit-Filled Jesus Admirer. Anyway, I mean, only because it feels like the title has to explain what you're about to talk about, right? Holy Spirit-Filled Jesus Admirer. How many Jesus Admirers do we have here? Anybody? If you if you're admire the Lord, quickly raise your hand. Huh? All right, so you might go like, what does it mean to admire? To be amazed at. To be preoccupied by. To be focused on. To have highest regard for. By the way, did you know the word worship? Can you guys hear me okay? Sorry, everybody online. That's probably loud. <laughs> did you know the word worship comes from the word worth-ship? The old English word for worship is worth-ship, which is the expression of what the original word worship meant. In other words, <clears throat> to worship is to, is to attach highest value, highest worth to something. That's what you worship. Somebody or people always think worshiping means like you got this little trinket and you're bowing in front of it. That's not worshiping. Worshiping isn't actually just singing. Worship isn't just having regard for. Worship is the very thing you have highest value for. That is who you worship. Worthship. So when you... When you admire, regard, or worship Jesus, that is when you have been touched by the very presence of God. That is the means by which God changes your heart. The Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity, which means we recognize the deity of the Holy Spirit. That means... The Holy Spirit is as much God as Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is as much God as Father God is God. As a matter of fact, God has never done anything without the entire Trinity. You don't find God doing something outside of Jesus or the Holy Spirit doing something outside of God. When God created the heavens and the earth, we find in the New Testament that says that God said, let, you know, let us create it was in God's mind, it was God's purpose, it was God's plan. And he spoke to himself in the plural, us, because he was referring to the rest of the Trinity. The Son and the Spirit. And then the Bible says that the Spirit of God was hovering on the face of the earth when God spoke. And the New Testament tells us, therefore, Jesus came and created Nothing was ever created without Jesus. Jesus is the one who has created all things. So in the creation, we find all three of the persons of the Godhead at work. In the new creation, we find all three persons of the Godhead at work. So we see, first and foremost, that the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. 
the person of the Holy Spirit is as much God as the Father and the Son. But according to scriptures, the Holy Spirit is, in fact, extremely actively involved in your life, has been and still is and always will be. For instance, in the scriptures, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit quickens your spirit. It was dead and He quickens it and makes it alive. The Holy Spirit enlightens you so you can have the revelation of God is. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. The Holy Spirit comforts us. The Holy Spirit draws us to God, otherwise we couldn't have been drawn to Him. The Holy Spirit gives us a measure of faith so that we can believe in God. The Holy Spirit is the one who unites us in Christ in one spirit. The Holy Spirit is God who dwells in us. Jesus is God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. The Holy Spirit is God in us. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us. That's why you've learned anything because the Holy Spirit has taught you. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. Without Him, there could be no holiness in my life. The Holy Spirit leads us. The Holy Spirit, the Bible says, seals us for the day of redemption. There is a seal stamped on your heart. The day Jesus comes to collect His bride, He, collect, he, he searches across all of human history, all of those who have ever been born, and He takes to Himself all those who have the seal of the Holy Spirit on their hearts. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you and I according to God's will consistently and eternally. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is, in fact, the one who regenerated you and birthed you the second time, the second creation. He was involved with the first creation and He births the second creation as you entered the kingdom of God. So when it comes to your salvation, we have to look at this and to, to grab a hold of it because only then can we relate to God, the Spirit. When we understand this that we're going to learn today, we will, for the first time, I'm going to move this up a little bit. Is that okay? No? I feel like it's about to fall off. When you uh, gra grab a hold of what we're going to look at today in Scriptures is when you will be able to respond to the Holy Spirit in gratitude, in thankfulness, in humility, in honor, in admiration, and in worship. Oftentimes, people want to respond to the Holy Spirit because of an experience that they may have, a goosebump. They may, they may uh, come from where I come from, a holy roller background, right? Um, Pentecostalism. But when we learn this about the Holy Spirit, we can respond to the Holy Spirit in worship, in humility, in adoration. So when it comes to your salvation, the Trinity is unanimously involved. Let me show you this. The Father, He has a part in your salvation. What is that part? Well, the Father, the Bible says, it is He who blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ. The Bible says it's the Father who chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. The Bible says it is the Father who predestined us to adoption as children by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of His will. According to the Father's will, the Bible says He predestined you to be adopted in Jesus Christ before the foundations of the earth. 
This is the Father's part in your salvation. Let's look at the Son's work in salvation. The Bible says that Jesus was made sin for you and I. It says that He was made a curse for us. The Bible says He was wounded for our transgressions. And was bruised for your and my iniquities. The Bible says that He carried our sins in His body on the tree. This is the work of the Son in salvation. It says that He gave Himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. In other words, the work of the Son was the penal substitutionary atonement for you and I. He received the penalty against your sin. The penalty against your sin fell upon your substitute, Jesus Christ. And so He made atonement between you and the Father. This was the work of the Son in salvation. Thirdly, the Spirit's work in salvation is incredible. And only when we understand it will, will we be humbled by the fact that He has sent us the Spirit. The Spirit applies to the church what Christ has accomplished for the church. The Spirit applies to you what Christ accomplished for you. So let me show you four things that the Holy Spirit did for you in salvation. Number one, the Holy Spirit convicts the unbelievers of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts unbelievers of sin. John 16 verse 8, the Bible says, And when He comes, Jesus speaking, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, we can develop that, but I would like for us to focus on the first. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. You see, you might say, okay, Jacques, um, what does that mean? Well, that means the day you fell under conviction and suddenly found yourself desperate to be made right with God, that day, that what happened right there was in fact the Holy Spirit working in you. I feel like I'm a little too soft. Can you guys hear me okay? It's just my ears. The Holy Spirit is the one who convicted you in the first place. Otherwise, you would never have wondered, what am I going to do with my sin? If ever that thought has come to you, and you have been convicted by that, I'm guilty. What am I going to do? How am I going to get saved? How am I going to get forgiven? Whenever that thought comes to you, Whenever guilt rises in your heart and you desperately in search for an answer, that was the Holy Spirit who did that to you. Today, many people want to talk that away. And they want, they want to use psychology to talk away the fact that somebody ought not to feel the drawing of the Holy Spirit. Can you see how psychology can work against what God is doing in a person's life? So the Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever of sin. And that sin is that they have disregarded, pushed away, 
the only possible way of salvation, which is Jesus. That's the sin. Number two, the Holy Spirit testifies of Christ, pointing people to the Lord. In John 15, 26, it says, But when the Helper comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. This is Jesus. I mean, can you see that? It is Jesus who sends you the Holy Spirit. Whom I will send to you from the Father. The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. He will bear witness about me. He says, Jacques, what does this mean? Well, the day that you were convicted... We already talked about that, of your sin, and you went, oh, I'm guilty. That's the Holy Spirit working in your heart. But the next day, or the next moment, or the next step is when you recognize Jesus. <laughs> it's like somebody's drowning, and a lifesaver throws him a rope, and he goes, oh, there it is. <laughs> you know, the rope. Same thing. Like when you realize you're drowning in sin and you go, oh, Jesus, he's the one. Guess who helped you identify him? The Holy Spirit. It says it right there. He will bear witness about me. What about me? That I'm the Savior. He is the witness. He goes, hey, Pam, that's the one. <laughs> Just like John the Baptist. He, says, he goes, hey, Connie, that's the one right there. The Lamb of God who comes to take away your sin. Oh, okay. So it is the Holy Spirit that convicts you, makes you realize that you have a problem. And He's the one who points out the solution. And then number three, the Holy Spirit regenerates the believer. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness. In other words, what does that mean? He saved you not based on your good works. He saved you not based on the fact that you have checked all the boxes. He saves you not based on the fact that you have a good heart. He saves you not based on the fact that you are so valuable. He saved you not based on the fact that you are anything. It was because of His love that He came to save. It's His love that drove Him to save. It's not your value that caused Him to come and find you. He saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we did in righteousness. Hey, I must say this. Oftentimes people go like, well, you know, just before he passed away, the minister was there to minister the sacraments. He's, he's in heaven today. That, that's not how somebody gets saved. Look at how, how somebody gets saved. He saved us not by what we do, but in according, accordance with His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Renewing by the Holy Spirit. Washing of regeneration. Can everybody, use, can everybody say the word regeneration? Regeneration. All right, so generation Generation speaks of life has been generated. Regeneration speaks of after it, was re after it was generated once, it died, and now it has to be re 
generated. It has to be brought back to life. So when you see that the Holy Spirit regenerates a person, it's talking about the Holy Spirit bringing a dead person back to life. That's regeneration. You were dead in your sins. The Holy Spirit comes and He breathes life into you and you are born again. You see, when you were born the first time, it was like when God came to Adam. He took that clay, that dirt. That's all we are, dirt, by the way. And he took that dirt and he breathed into its nostrils. And that dirt came alive. And it became a living being. And that dirt, you and I, sinned. And the sin caused us to die spiritually and then the Holy Spirit comes on the day of your rebirth he takes you and he goes and you come back alive you have been generated and then you were regenerated by the very breath of God because spirit of God is breath of God the word spirit pneuma is wind the breath of God and so it is the Holy Spirit that breathed into you so that you could be regenerated and born again. Let's read that again, and I want to show you something. It says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. He regenerated you, and He washed you, and He cleansed you, and He brought you back to life. He renewed you by His Spirit. How many of you are born again? Can I just quickly see? You're born again. You've been regenerated. God. All right. Uh, there's no possible way for anybody to be regenerated without actually having the Holy Spirit. Everybody who is born again is born again because they have the Holy Spirit. Do you feel it? No. It's a matter of faith. It's not a matter of feeling. Let's dig a little bit deeper in this whole idea of being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus actually explains how this happens. And he was talking to a Pharisee in John 3, verse 5. He's talking to Nicodemus. And Jesus answered Nicodemus in verse 5. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit. Now, he's, now Jesus is reaching into the Old Testament, and he's pulling a thought out of one of the prophets, and he's saying, as the prophet said, I will send water to wash you and cleanse you, and the Spirit to save you. Here Jesus is basically explaining to this Pharisee what this Pharisee did not understand about the Old Testament. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh. That which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. 
just a simple point. You know, people have the have the um, the way of saying we're all God's children. Well, that's not necessarily so. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Ch- children of Adam. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Children of God. Children of God. All right, so he says, That which has been born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Verse 7. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it, you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. <laughs> You've noticed that Jesus uses this great analogy of the wind, since they all understand the wind. You can't see it. It has a will of its own. You can't tell it where to blow and where not to blow. <clears throat> the wind just kind of like comes unexpectedly and blows in a, in a direction you didn't expect. It's at the wind's will. And in the same way, it is the breath of God will blow wherever it wishes and nobody can stop it. And so, in the same way, Jesus is building His church, and the gates of hell will not stop it. So we see that the Holy Spirit convicts the sinner, the unbeliever of his sin, of rejecting Christ. The Holy Spirit then points Jesus Christ out to this person who's convicted and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thirdly, we see that the Holy Spirit then breathes into this person who's looking to Jesus. He breathes into that person and births him anew, causes him to be regenerated. Then, number four, the Holy Spirit seals that believer's heart until the great day of redemption. What a great process, isn't it? You see, the Holy Spirit is all the while at work in your heart, bringing you to salvation. Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, that is very possible to do, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You were sealed for the day of redemption. The seal of the king is on you. You are his property. You belong to him. What is that seal? The Holy Spirit. Therefore, don't grieve that Holy Spirit. That shows that you are property of God. So in conclusion, the work of the Father, the work of the Father in salvation is that He chooses His Son's bride and gives her to Him as a gift. The work of the Son is that He pays the sin of debt or the sin debt for those whom the Father has chosen to give Him as a bride. The work of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit regenerates those the Son has redeemed with His blood. We can say it this way. Salvation is purposed by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is from God. It is in Christ by the power of His Spirit. Not by power nor by might, but by the Spirit of God.
We love the sound of children, just so you know. <laughs> Church growth all over the place. <laughs> I hope Dan and Sharmila is able to join in today. Maybe this is little Caleb's first service. <clears throat> Isn't it amazing how the Father purpose salvation, the Son accomplishes it, and the Holy Spirit applies it to your life? It's an amazing thing how the Trinity works together. Oftentimes people ask me, explain the Trinity. Three in one, separate per people, one person. Like, actually, I'll just rather explain to you how they work together. Whether it be in creation or in the recreation. So today I thought of just showing you, in short, uh, proofs of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is present. And I always ask the Lord to help uh, Tina and myself and us here at Christ Nation to be real practical and understandable when it comes to spiritual principles. You know, for our natural minds to grasp these spiritual things that God teaches us in the, in the Scriptures, that's important because that's how we renew our minds. You don't renew your mind when you replace, um, you know, when you use psychology to replace a negative thought with a positive thought. That's not how you renew your mind. You renew your mind when you start understanding the workings of God. You renew your mind when you start understanding the ways of God. That's how you renew your mind. He says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Your thoughts um, are not almost as high as God's, but your ways can be impacted when you start wrapping your thoughts around the ways of God. I hope that was clear. So it's important for us to renew our minds. How? By understanding the who God is and how He works, His character, His attributes. When we start understanding that, our worldview changes, our marriages change, our relationships change, everything about us change. We suddenly respond to God in a different way. Now, when I, when I share the gospel with somebody, I know that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing the gospel. In other words, when you share the gospel to somebody, that's the only possible way faith can come to them to believe in Christ for salvation. So now when I share the gospel, I'm all the while trusting in the Holy Spirit to convict the unbeliever of sin, to point the unbeliever's attention to point out Christ and to show the unbeliever, Behold, the Lamb of God who came, who has come to take away your sins. All the while, while I'm sharing the gospel, I'm relying upon the Holy Spirit to convict, to reveal Christ, and then to regenerate this heart and to seal that person with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. So in other words... What I am saying is, it is so important for you and I to understand the ways of God because it changes everything we do, how we minister, how we relate, our worldview. It changes everything about us. So I wanted to make sure that what we do at Christ Nation is that we are real, that we are understandable, that we, that we allow the things of God to be understandable, applicable, and practical in our lives. So the next time when you share the gospel, you rely upon the power of the Spirit 
to convince a person and not your personality. <laughs> you know? I mean, if you can persuade somebody one way, somebody else can persuade them a different way. But if you allow the Holy Ghost to touch a person, it's done. Nobody can change that. And also, considering the fact that so many of us, from the backgrounds from which we come, we oftentimes expect something from God God never, off God never offered to give us. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're waiting for a Holy Ghost service because we're expecting to experience certain things, see certain things that God never offered us. And so when it comes to the Holy Spirit, this is oftentimes one of the most neglected and misunderstood subjects in Christendom. And of course, it'll take months and months to dig deep into all that the Holy Spirit does since I started off by showing you that the Holy Spirit quickens, enlightens, convicts, comforts, draws, um, gives us a measure of faith to believe with. He unites us to Christ. He dwells in us. What does that mean? He teaches us. He sanctifies us. He leads us. He seals us. He intercedes for us. He regenerates us. I mean, it'll, it'll take months to explain all of that, but here is something that I feel is like a bullseye for you and I to understand so that it can be applicable and practical to us in our lives. The question is, what are the proofs that the Holy Spirit is present? How do I know the Holy Spirit is here? We oftentimes rely on pragmatic ideas like creating a mood by using the right set of strings and padding and songs and chords and voices and lighting. And we oftentimes lean upon those pragmatic ideas, but Scripturally, when we go to the objective truth of Scripture, how do we know the Spirit of God is here and working in my life individually and in us as a church corporately? Well, the first is, and I only have two, the first is that the proof of the Spirit, of the Spirit, proof the Spirit is present, excuse me, is the display of the fruits of that Spirit. <laughs> so, all right, we can go home now. Is so that's the first question. What are the fruits of the Spirit? They're listed. In Galatians 5.22 it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's interesting that the first one is love and the last one is self-control. Nice two bookends. <laughs> Right? There are the nine fruits. In other words, these are the things that naturally grow in the life of the person who has the Spirit of God. The more you are filled with the Spirit of God, the greater harvests you will have of the same fruits listed in Galatians 5. Let me say that again. The more you are filled with the Spirit of God, the greater harvests you have of these Fruits that naturally grow on this tree. Somebody said, how much of the Spirit do you have? The question is, not how much Holy Ghost do you have. The question is, 
How much of you does the Holy Ghost have? Right? So instead of looking towards an experience, we look towards a surrender in order to determine how filled you really are. Hmm. So we understand that fruits are important to look at in our own lives and in the church's life. We oftentimes measure fruits in the wrong way. Somebody says, um, somebody says, oh, you know what, just a lot of bad things have happened to me. You know, I don't know, the Spirit has leaked out somewhere. <laughs> well, try to explain that to the Apostle Paul. You know, Tina and myself and the kids were just reading through Acts yesterday morning the book of acts the bible <laughs> and um you, you should do that you will love it especially when you get to the later parts of the book of acts you see how the apostle paul um he just kept on running straight into um danger because i mean it, it's just an amazing thing how god used him in such a great way so Fruits are important, and we need to understand what they look like. This is what they look like. They look like joy. They look like peace and joy in the midst of a pandemic. Patience and kindness. It looks like goodness and faithfulness. It looks like gentleness. Sure, we should grow in these things. I'm saying we. I'm talking to myself. <laughs> Again, such things, there is no law. But why are fruits important? Because they, they help you identify the kind of tree, but it also identifies the maturity level of that tree. Let me say that again. I, don't, don't miss this. Why is a fruit important? Because it shows you, Tina, I think it's too cold. They show you what kind of tree that is, number one, and it shows you how mature that tree already is. Because how many of you know that you can't find a massive harvest from a tree that is still a little twig, right? It first has to grow up, and when it's grown up, it'll start producing lots of fruits. Fruits is the sign that the tree has matured. And so in the same way, a lot of people, you know, they, they, they say, well, I got, I, got, I got filled with the Holy Ghost the other day. It's like, all right, well, <laughs> whoa, okay. All right, so you just got, like, got saved on day one, got filled in the Holy Ghost day two, and, and, and that's sufficient. No, it's not. You have to grow in maturity and bear fruits of the Spirit to prove that you have the Spirit. How many of you know that there have been times when you know that you have been, you have had, you were more filled with the Holy Spirit, really more surrendered to the Holy Spirit than other times, Right? That's why we have to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Or daily we have to pray the prayer of consecration and be more surrendered to God. Because you could be less surrendered to God today than what you were yesterday. And therefore, be less in tune with what the Holy Ghost is doing today than what you were yesterday. And have less fruits today than what you were, had yesterday. So we have to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. So we understand the first question is, 
What are the fruits of the Spirit? We identified those. But the second question is very important. We need to ask, toward whom are we supposed to respond in this way? You know, many people are, uh, they, they like walk on cloud nine. They deepen the Spirit. They hear God speak all the time. They, they're so in tune with God and they're so uh, um, super spiritual. But this question right here, is where the rubber hits the road. Toward whom are we supposed to respond in these nine fruits of the Spirit? Well, the fruits of the Spirit aren't exclusive between me and the Holy Spirit. I'm not supposed to be patient with the Holy Spirit and kind of, oh, I'd be kind to you today, Holy Spirit, or have self-control toward the Holy Spirit. It's not toward the Holy Spirit that our fruits are. Our fruits are toward each other in the body of Christ, right? In a real congregation with real people, with real problems, Look for the fruits of the Spirit as congregants come together in unity, in unity of mind, in unity of spirit, and in unity of goal, which is to glorify God. The Holy Spirit is not, is not so much manifested in spectacular sign gifts like the prophetic utterance, tongues, and that sort of thing. On the contrary, oftentimes, they will call them Holy Ghost meetings where people prophesy and so forth, but the carnality levels are through the roof. The divisiveness are through the roof. Covetousness, everybody wants to, everybody wants the microphone, you know. That's, that's usually the case. Here I'm begging people to take the microphone. <laughs> I'm like, come on, you can do it. No, I'm not doing it. Everybody's like Moses. No, I'm not. Everybody's like Gideon. No, not me. Everybody's like Jonah. No, not me. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but oftentimes, you know, when you get to a Holy Ghost environments where the focus is on the Holy Spirit, you get the opposite. And I'm not saying that because I'm guessing it. I'm saying that because I've lived it my whole entire life. When in fact, The opposite ought to be true. The Holy Spirit is manifested in, in knitting the saints together in love. Knitting the saints together in having the same truth, the same view uh, of God, the same goals which is to glorify God, the same truth which is the Scripture. The proof of uh, that a person and a congregation is filled with the Spirit is unity in the Spirit. So our first thing we have to look at are those spirit or the fruits of that of the spirit, those fruits. The second proof that the Holy Spirit is present is the admiration of Jesus. And this is where I get the title of today's message, the admiration of Jesus. The admiration of Jesus. The preoccupation with Christ. In the West, we, we have kind of like hooked our little wagon onto like TED Talks and stuff like that, which is very interesting and very enlightening and oftentimes very helpful. It's like a self-help thing, and, and, and it's kind of weaved its way into the church. When you look at the early church, what was their message? Jesus, 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 every week. Every day, every meal, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ to be proclaimed. 
This is how you proclaim it. Now go and proclaim it. This is how you proclaim it. Now go and proclaim it. Decipe, the proof of a disciple is that he's always making disciples because he told his disciples, go and make what? Disciples. Therefore, it's proof of a disciple is the fact that he's making disciples. This is how you preach the gospel. Now go and proclaim it. This is how you preach the gospel. Now go and proclaim it. This was the functioning of the church. Where today, we almost feel like we didn't have church if we hear the gospel. Because, oh, I've heard that before. I'm looking for something like, like I just heard a TED talk last week. <laughs> the proof that the Holy Spirit is present is the admiration of Jesus and the work of Christ on the cross. The value that, that we have in it, that we, that we talk about it all the time. Have you noticed that when you put a couple of people around, they always talk about the thing that they find most valuable. And so when the church came together, they, they would talk about the cross. Dr. Charles Erdman said, quote, I have become convinced those persons who are most filled with the Holy Spirit who are, least, are the ones who are least conscious of it. It is that they wish to serve Jesus Christ. That's the only thing they have. So in other words, what he is saying is that those who are most filled with the Holy Spirit are those who are most preoccupied with Christ. Those are the ones who are most filled with the Holy Ghost. Just like the Bible is not about the Bible. Have you ever noticed? The Bible is not about the Bible. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is not about the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes we do that. We act as if the Holy Spirit is all about the Holy Spirit. We're going to have a Holy Spirit night. That's what we sometimes do, and that's not right. You see, you will never see the Holy Spirit call attention to Himself. He always calls attention to Christ. Now, I can show you many, many verses, but let me just go to a few. John 14, 26. But the Helper, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and do what? Remind you of all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit will teach you and do what? Remind you of everything I have taught you. So the Holy Spirit is connecting your understanding to Christ's teachings. Jesus' teachings. It's almost like when Jesus' mom said this, the, first, the first miracle, you know, she said to him, hey, we don't have wine left. And, and uh, he says, no, it's not my time yet. And then she turns to the guys and she says, do whatever he says. And she walks away. The Holy Spirit is consistently not saying, hey, invite me into your, invite me into your heart. No, the Holy Spirit is saying, look at Christ. Listen to Christ. Do you remember what he said? Think about his teachings. Sur uh, surrender to Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. John 15, 26, it says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, namely the Spirit of truth, whom comes from the Father, He will testify about me. What does the Holy Spirit do? He will testify about Christ. So now we see that He will remind you about everything Christ said and taught he will testify about Christ. Let's go to John 16, 8. It says, He, and He, when He comes, the Holy Spirit, will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment regarding sin because they do not believe me or they do not believe in me. 
Why does the Holy Spirit convict the world? Because they don't believe in Jesus. So here comes the Holy Spirit into a church service like this. And the Holy Spirit, first thing is, He says, remember what Jesus taught you. Second thing is, this is Jesus. I'm testifying to you about Jesus. The third thing is, I will convict you if you don't believe in Jesus. <laughs> it's all about Jesus. Look at John 16 verse 13. It says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. Verse 14. He, the Holy Spirit, will glorify me. For he will take from mine and will disclose it to you. Jesus cannot be revealed to you unless the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to you. That's why he came. He came to get you preoccupied with Christ. Work of the Holy Ghost. Work of the Holy Spirit is to get every person to honor Christ, to admire Christ, to value Christ, to hear Christ, to identify Christ, to listen to Christ, to remember what Christ has said, to believe in Christ. But the work of other spirits, hear me out, the work of other spirits in a person's life is the honoring of themselves. The work of the Spirit in your life is so you will honor Christ. The work of the Holy Ghost in your life is to honor Christ. But the work of a foreign spirit in your life is to honor yourself. But wherever a church or a person centers faithfully in honoring the person, the teaching, and the work of Jesus Christ there, we are sure we are in the very presence of the Holy Ghost. When the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples in Acts chapter 2, they become what? Witnesses of who? Jesus Christ. <laughs> the work of the Holy Ghost. Remember, in Acts chapter 2, they were all up in the upper room praying and praying and praying because Jesus said, now go to the upper room and wait until you get empowered from an eye and then you will be my witnesses. So they're in the upper room waiting and waiting and praying and praying and praying and the next thing is the Holy Ghost falls on them. But what happens? He falls on them and they became witnesses of who? Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Holy Ghost. Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit is most present when we, or let me say this, uh, when and where Jesus is most central. The Holy Ghost is most present where and when Jesus is most central. And uh, you know when, four or five years ago, when we became a standalone church, Tina and I um, we're talking through some of the basic principles of Christ Nation. And we're happy to call it Christ Nation because uh, we wanted it to be Christocentric, Christ-centric, everything about Jesus. We wanted to call it Christ Nation because we wanted people to realize that they do not belong to this world. They belong to the kingdom of God. Uh, you are a nation. You are a people. We are a family of God. And you are... First a Christian long before you were a South African, all right? You first a Christian long before you're a Canadian. 
You're first a Christian long before you're a husband. You're first a Christian long before you're a wife. You're first a Christian long before you're anything else. First a Christian. First part of this family of God. So I remember us talking about what we call the decentralization of the church, which is basically where um, it's no longer about a person standing up here and everybody has to adopt this person's perspectives on relationships and everything else in life. It's about the Word of God being the central of a congregation and everybody uniting around truth, scriptural truth. And we will work as hard as we can to try and adopt scriptural truth. And uh, if, if yours truly gets anything wrong, that, um, which happens, that anybody can say, hey, listen, let's talk about this truth. Because I think, I don't see what you're seeing. I'm seeing something else in scriptures. There is no, there is no higher, higher authority than the actual scriptures in this congregation. Check it out. Not me. Not Pritzker. You know, not the White House. Nobody is king but Jesus. And He is the Word made flesh. So therefore, and this is historically speaking, the plight of the church. Because historically speaking, there's always been this one-upmanship between the state versus the church, the state versus the church, the state versus the church. And then what they do every now and then is they say, okay, well then, you know, instead of uh, in between the king and the pope and the king and the pope or in England, all right, well, what we're going to do is we're going to make the king the head of the church. And now we have the church of England. And that's where we get all of our settlers from, right? They go like, they're called the separatists. Like, no, we're separate from that. We're not going to serve ultimately a king. no. We will submit to the civil government as long as the civil government complies to our ultimate king, Jesus. But when the civil government does not comply to our ultimate king, Jesus, and forces us to do something our king requires of us, we will obey God instead of man. That's what, that's what Peter said. We must obey God instead of man. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, the whole entire history of the church is about Jesus, not Caesar, is king. And that's why they get into trouble. Because they ultimately will not bow to who they have been, uh, the Lord tells them to bow to. And so in the Reformation, the Reformers came up with the idea of actual separation between church and state. We will comply as long as it's scriptural. And we will comply in every way that scripture doesn't, doesn't have a thought on. But when it comes to what scripture tells us to do, uh, we will do what scripture tells us to do every time. And so they came up with the separation between church and state in different, in different wording. And... Uh, um, <clears throat> I'm saying that for whatever reason. But when the Holy Spirit comes on the disciples, they become witnesses. Not of the Holy Spirit, but they become witnesses of Jesus. 
So the Holy Spirit is most present when and where Jesus is most central. And that was the point I was making about Christ Nation. Christ Nation is a group of people who love God and ultimately answer to their king, Jesus. Not to me, but Jesus. You don't have to adopt my view on certain things if it's not scriptural. You can, we're all together in the same boat around the same truth. Amen? That's what unites us. So I do not believe that the church needs a new focus on the Holy Spirit in order to be renewed. Because the Spirit's work is to focus the church's attention on Christ and not on spirit experiences. Having the Holy Spirit without being preoccupied with proclaiming Christ for those in Reading and everywhere else in the world, they have to hear that having the Holy Spirit without the preoccupation of proclaiming Christ misses the point and misses the purpose of the Holy Spirit entirely. The church needs to study the, the scriptural Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit drives them to do. They need to see the scriptural Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is pointing them to. They need to proclaim the scriptural Jesus. That is what brings a renewal. That's what happened the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came and they became witnesses of Jesus. And that is the renewal the church needs. There is no need for anybody to chase after the next anointed revivalist in a tent down in Florida somewhere <laughs> because the Holy Spirit's work in you is to cause you to be preoccupied with Christ, the scriptural Christ, not with the Holy Spirit Himself. People who keep on chasing after experiences of the Holy Spirit are not preoccupied with Christ. They're preoccupied with an experience. There is no need to follow the five steps of being filled with the Holy Ghost. Say this, ba ba. That is not, you don't see it anywhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible. Now, if I'm wrong, if you find it somewhere, call me up. You know, we can have coffee. I can have coffee, trust me. I, I, I can have coffee, and we can, hey, listen. Who had, who, like, who's had a horrible cup of coffee around a table with us? Yeah? No, not you, Gia. <laughs> you, yeah. Yeah, she actually has. <laughs> one, of, one of the, one of the, uh, you know, when we, like, when we started talking about Christ, decentralizing Christ Nation, one of the things that we really focus on is accessibility. I want to hear you out. Otherwise, how can I expect you to want to hear me out? I want to hear you out with the Bible between us. But you know, people don't want to do that. They don't want to do it. My point is, there is no scriptural example of that anywhere. So we don't need to find and follow the five steps of being filled with the Holy Ghost. What is necessary is to proclaim what John the Baptist proclaimed as he prophesied by the Holy Spirit, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. If that is something that's big in your heart, it's because you're filled with the Holy Ghost. 
if that's what you surrender yourself to, then you have surrendered yourself to the Holy Ghost. If you are preoccupied with Jesus, then you are giving yourself to the Holy Ghost. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He spoke by the Spirit of God, the last prophet of the Old Testament, John the Baptist. Now you might say, okay, so Jacques, well, let me read you one verse and then I'm going to answer the question that's in my mind. John 14 verse 15, Jesus speaking, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He's not saying, keep my commands, otherwise I don't believe you love me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if you love me, the natural response would be, you give yourself to my teachings. That's what he's saying. You'll give yourself to me if you love me. It's true in marriage. If you love her, you give yourself to her. If she loves you, she gives herself to you. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then he continues and he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you what? Another helper to be with you forever, even the very spirit of truth. Now you might say, Jacques, um, what about tongues? What about prophecy? What about being slain in the spirit? What about laughter in the spirit? What about healing? What about all of those things that are done by the power of God, the Holy Spirit? They are, there are two groups of people. The one group of people, and I'm closing with this, is called, they are called cessationists. And then there's a second group of people they are called continuists. Cessationists believe that these gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are laying on of hands and healing and speaking in tongues and seeing miracles take place, the cessationists believe that those things dwindled away during the apostolic age as you saw at the end of the apostolic age, Paul got sick, Timothy got sick, Paul had problem with his eye, whatever it was. And, and uh, so based on that, these people have concluded that miracles started dwindling, they stopped taking place, and cessationists believe, therefore, these things have passed away since the perfect, uh, the Word of God has come. Continuists believe that the Spirit is still all the while at work. In the same way it used to work in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. Like, for instance, killing, um, killing the two <laughs> who lied about the offering. <laughs> what were their names? Ananias and Sapphira. I don't know why that just came. I'm just thinking people are always like, yeah, the Holy Spirit still works. How dare he? Yeah, he does. He kills people in church. So <laughs> be careful what you wish for. <laughs> the Holy Spirit still works. My point is... Cessationists believe the Holy Spirit no longer works. Continuists believe the Holy Spirit still works, still heals, still performs miracles, and so forth. People still speak in tongues, and so forth. Of course, I am, and so is Tina, a continuist. I believe that the Holy Spirit still works, still speaks, still leads, still guides, still um, heals, <laughs> and all of the above. Just so that you understand, again, this subject is worth months of teaching, and we looked into the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian 
when it comes to their salvation and when it comes to Jesus Christ. And that is why I want to show you that just having an experience by the Holy Spirit without you being completely preoccupied with the work of Christ on the cross and the proclamation of that work is not a true Holy Ghost experience. When the Holy Ghost touches you, you are empowered to be a witness unto the world of Christ. And that is absolutely always the case. The Holy Spirit doesn't compartmentalize Jesus. He says, you know, sometimes when I touch a person, they become a witness. No, every time he touches a person, they become a witness. They become like John. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. Let's give the Lord a praise. Amen. Thank you very much.